0: This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. So let me stir the conversation up a little bit today by asking a question right at the outset that I want you thinking about, all of us. Whether you're going to act on this in a moment or throw this out there or not. If you had the opportunity to sit with Jesus, now I I know, essentially we sit with Jesus in the body of Christ, but I'm talking about the bronze-skinned guy who wore a robe and sandals. When God came to the earth and walked the seashores of Galilee and the streets, dusty paths of Palestine, if you had the opportunity to sit with Jesus and talk to him about a contemporary, Pressing issue In the world today Macro or micro the Macro world or the micro world If you had the chance Bob to sit with Jesus Look at him one on one And ask him a question And say I would really like to talk this through with you What would it be? One shot What would you talk to him about a lot of big issues in our world and you got to be careful not to be myopic or chronocentric you know time arrogant act like you know our culture our generation is the only one that's ever lived assume that our issues are the same issues they were wrestling with in South Africa in the 16th century or Syria in the fourth century of course that's not true but Christ who transcends time can sit with any generation and culture. It would be a fascinating thing just for us to observe in church history what were the pressing issues in different centuries and in different locales. You'd be amazed at what was pressing for them that you've never even thought of. You'd be amazed that the things that you think are the central question of the faith community haven't even, weren't even close to the fore or the surface in their lives. But in your life... I think about the big macro stuff. You could sit with Jesus, read the Bible with Jesus, and say, "What's God's heart, and how do we do immigration?" I sat with on the phone probably a year ago with Clint's dad, a U.S. representative from Wisconsin. He said, "I just want to talk through biblical language and thought." on immigration as a representative in the United States Congress he said I'm so torn a million different ways because this is so complex I trust people as enlightened when they're slow to answer and they're quick to recognize the complexity of massive subjects when people just press in and act like it's black and white and an easy answer uh, I generally clam up and get pretty quiet with folk like that. Immigration, I mean, I think about the issues of our time as a child raised in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in the evangelical church, of course. Um, abortion, issues of science, um, the LGBT, QIA two, it just keeps getting letters on that one. Um, the LGBT issue, which this church has tried to tackle head on. Um distribution of wealth, um, war, armament. And I'm just speaking as a child of, again, my culture. Bill, if I, I don't know how much I wouldn't pay to be able to sit down nothing esoteric or ethereal and look at God in flesh and say, could we talk this out? um if you could what would your question be think about that today's the last message of our easter tide series that we have built on the 24th and final chapter of the gospel of luke inspired by luke's account luke the traveling companion of paul the early church believed that when we read luke we were really getting what Justin Martyr called the memoir of the Apostle Paul the memoir of the Apostle the memoir of our Lord through the Apostle Paul inspired by Luke may be Paul's account of the 40-day period that stretched from the resurrection of Jesus to his ascension into heaven that 40-day period Luke 24 covers that not exhaustively That hits the most seminal, in his mind, the most seminal important points of that 40-day period. That 40-day period and the interaction that happened particularly with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus has been uh, our inspiration for this series. The series has focused us on our Lord's very purposeful And I can't underscore that enough, very intentional effort to reorient his followers after his death and obviously after his resurrection. But they had not appropriated his resurrection. All that we know about those fellows on the road to Emmaus is they were disciples of the Lord and they were leaving Jerusalem despondent. And everything they believed about Jesus had been devastated, decimated, and they were going back to Emmaus seven miles away to resume their life without Jesus. Our Lord interacted with them, and you remember, did not immediately reveal himself, but he sought to reorient them by leading them two ways. Jesus did two things in that reorientation the first thing that he did was he took them back to their sacred text he took them back to the Bible a book that had been used a book that had been interpreted such that it even led to his death and yet Jesus immediately takes them back to the Bible the Hebrew Scriptures we call that the Old Testament the 39 books of the Old Testament but that was their Bible still our Bible second thing that Jesus did was he broke bread with them and we think that's a picture of the Lord's Supper we really feel like it's the second Lord's Supper the Eucharist because when he broke the bread they saw him and we feel like that's good reason that text gives us good reason as a community to be Eucharistically centered communion centered and scripture centered in that pivotal Easter day interaction with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus did something on that day that from that day forward would guide the Christian church in its efforts to discern the mind of God on whatever are the pressing matters of that day. On that day in Luke 24... um, J.D., this is what we were talking to Dr. Russell yesterday. Dr. Brian Russell did a wonderful seminar here on Friday and Saturday. J.D. uh, talked to you about it. Some of you were able to come out. Those that didn't, you really missed a great opportunity. But we were talking, I was talking to Brian Russell, a biblical interpretation expert who teaches at Asbury. And I was talking to him about this series, Luke 24, and he agreed with me. Luke 24 gives us a gift as the church. It gives us a hermeneutic lens. And when I say hermeneutic, it's a fancy scientific theological word. hermeneutic simply means an interpretive method. Deductive thinking is a hermeneutic. Inductive thinking is a hermeneutic. Any method of interpretation is a hermeneutic. It's a Greek word that comes from originally, etymologically from uh, the god Hermes, who was, remember, um, the message bringer between God and humans so interpreting the mind of God is originally where the classic idea of hermeneutics came from and in Luke 24 the gospel gives us an incredible gift as we struggle with issues like immigration or abortion or the distribution of wealth because the Bible says that Jesus got up out of the grave and before revealing himself to the disciples It says this, he interpreted or explained the scripture to them. That tells me that even good people need Jesus to explain the text to them. Even smart people, devoted people need Jesus to help them interpret and read the text properly. Later, when the the Eucharist happened, when he broke bread, when they saw those hands break bread, I don't know if they saw the prints in the hands or it was just the vision of the bread, but they saw him and immediately he disappeared and they said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scripture to us? So what earlier had been called the interpreting of Jesus, the interpretation of the scripture by Jesus, Now they describe it as he opened the book for us. I don't know about you, but there have been times I have felt like this was a closed book to me. Anybody ever read this and it felt closed? Anybody ever got stuck in the middle of Leviticus and felt like it was pretty closed? Good news. Jesus can masterfully open the text for you. Later in that chapter, pivotal verse Scripture says that not only did Jesus interpret the text and open the text, but he did something else. He opened their minds that they might understand. And I want to say this, a Jesus-interpreted, a Jesus-opened text does you no good unless simultaneously the Spirit opens your mind. No matter how effusively this attempts to give... If you come with ulterior motive, preconception, predisposition that so is so set that you cannot be impacted, you will thwart the opening of the text for you. So the disciples said, not only did he open the text, he opened our minds and opened our hearts that we might finally understand the scripture. Now that little story is, is what I'm talking about when I say Jesus gave the Christian church its ultimate hermeneutic, its ultimate method of interpretation. Not just for the Bible, but he gave us a hermeneutic for life. He gave us a hermeneutic for the experiences that we endure. Notice, he wasn't just opening their minds and their texts that they might understand what Zechariah or Jeremiah were saying. He was opening their minds that they might understand what they just saw a couple of days before, and that was their Messiah cruelly hanging on a cross. He was opening their minds that they might understand the text and life, and in so doing, he gave us a gift. I like to refer to this way of interpretation and application. That's what I would call reading the Bible with Jesus. That would make a great title for a book, by the way, J.D., Reading the Bible with Jesus. Now, to read the Bible with Jesus sounds so esoteric and so ethereal that it conjures up images of what I started this message with, and that was, if Jesus walked in here, blue robe, bronze skin, long hair, sandal feet, whatever he looked like, if he walked in here, and he took me and moved me aside and opened the Bible and began reading to you and explaining. Let me talk to you. How would you like Jesus to stand up here and say, let me talk to you about immigration? Let me talk to you about socialism and capitalism. Can I, can I talk a little bit about Marx and John Locke and the like? Would you all enjoy that? Some of you might not vote for him. As Brother Hardwick, my mentor, his mother-in-law, Sister Carson, a holy woman that came from the age of FDR and the Depression. She was a Democrat all the way, boy. Little Pentecostal bun on her, but she was the old Dixie-crat, you know. And Brother Hardwick was arguing politics with her one day, and he said, Sister Carson, I believe if Jesus were a Democrat, you'd vote against him. She said, no, Brother Hardwick, I wouldn't vote against him, but I'd set that one out. Reading the Bible with Jesus is not sitting down with a bronze-skinned Galilean that's come back from the grave. To read the Bible with Jesus sounds so esoteric, but I wanna tell you there is a very real and practical picture, outplay of this today, and it can happen right here in this room. I hope it does happen. To read the Bible with Jesus means to sit with the community of faith and open the text the community of faith that is called by the way the body of Christ did you just hear that the body of Jesus 2 Corinthians 5 Dirk the Apostle Paul said to it God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself And he's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he went further and he said, Did you know that you now, as the body of Christ, you stand in God's place? To read the Bible with Jesus in a modern setting is to read the Bible with the body of Christ. Not just the body of Christ that sits in this room or goes to your local church, but to read the Bible with the body of Christ, Orthodox and Catholic, Anglican and Presbyterian, Pentecostal and traditional, progressive, and all in between. To read the Bible with Jesus is to sit with the community of faith or the present body of Christ. You say, well that's not nearly as good as having Jesus walk in here. Jesus actually said it was better. He told Mary and the apostles, let go of me. I have something better for you. I go away and it breaks your heart, but I will come again. And when I come back, I'm going to make another body of Christ. And instead of the body of Christ being relegated to one physical man, the body of Christ is going to be everywhere people are who have been raised with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the ever-living presence of God. Jesus said, greater works than I've done will you do. Do you believe that? Greater works than I've done because, than, that, that you will do than I do. Why? Because no longer is God limited to this manifestation of a body in one man. But the body of Christ is the community of faith filled with the spirit of Jesus. If Jesus believes that better If Jesus believes that's better, then as much as my offering a moment ago, what would happen if Jesus walked in here and you could sit down with him? Per Jesus, you have a better opportunity, a more enriching opportunity. Perhaps in its own ways, a more difficult opportunity. Perhaps in its own way, a a less difficult opportunity. To read the Bible with Jesus is to sit with the community of faith or the body of Christ and to wrestle, to put this book in our lap and to sit with one another and wrestle at a dynamic intersection, an intersection where a world-changing collision takes place, a dynamic intersection of an ancient text and a contemporary question. An ancient inspired text and a pressing modern scenario. To read the Bible with Jesus is to sit in the middle of that crossroad and hopefully there will be a traffic guard. That's what pastors and teachers are. We are not spoon feeders, we are not cult leaders, we are traffic guides that sit at that dangerous intersection. But that intersection where Mike, we must live. It's amazing to me that we have learned that we can't talk about controversial things like religion and politics at family reunions. What's even sadder is we've decided we can't talk about religion and politics at church. Because we are so afraid. You know why? Because with inferior facilitation and traffic guards, That intersection can create some pretty big wrecks and a whole lot of carnage. That's why Luke 24 gives us a hermeneutic that the ultimate traffic guard is Jesus. Now I wanna tell you what Jesus will do if he's the traffic guard at that intersection. He will first disqualify anybody from getting in that intersection with a bad attitude. If you come with arrogance, self-righteousness, or a sword to grind, he will sit you back on the side of the road and say, you are not coming through here. We will begin with love and we will end with love, Jesus would say. But we can come to that critical intersection of immigration, distribution of wealth, LGBT, Divorce and remarriage. Women's role in society and the church. Pick yours. We can come to that dangerous intersection with a resurrected Lord who says, when you as the body of Christ put this Bible in your lap and humbly sit with one another, my spirit is there guiding you and you will be reading the Bible with me. The fact is that what we now call the New Testament, it was not originally produced by the church to be sacred scripture. If you would have told Paul that the book he called Romans was going to be put alongside Genesis, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah, he would have told you to wash your mouth out with soap. Paul was writing beyond what he could have ever imagined. The New Testament, as we know it, was not originally produced by the church to be a Bible. They had a Bible, and it was sufficient enough for them that they preached Jesus from it everywhere they went. They called it sacred scripture. Actually, the text that we now have added to the Bible and call Bible, and we deeply believe is Bible those texts were actually the writings of the early church faithfully doing exactly what I just described. Sitting with Jesus, wrestling with their text, the Hebrew Scriptures, and current experiences. When Paul wrestled with what it meant for Gentile people to have no need of Sabbath or circumcision... Paul had to wrestle, not with the Mosaic law, but he had to go all the way back to Abraham and creation. When Paul wrestled with what it means to be justified by faith and not the works of the law, he didn't have the gospel of John to work with. He had the spirit of Jesus and the book of Habakkuk, which told us that the just would live by faith. When Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and preached Jesus, he did not open a text to Romans, Galatians, or Mark. He opened the text to Zechariah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, and the Psalms, and he preached the word of God from sacred Scripture. The early church wrestled with their text The writings of Paul are the writings of an apostle wrestling with an Old Testament text. The Hebrew scriptures wrestling with the Bible and believing that the Spirit of God was with him. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said, On these matters of which you wrote to me, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I think I have the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord guided him on three occasions in that chapter to say, I give my opinion on this matter. Paul could have never imagined that he was doing something tantamount Shelley to what happened in Exodus 19 and 20. The giving of the law. But eventually, those 27 initial wrestlings, those 27 books, those initial wrestlings of the church, 3,120 of them on the day of Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next week, 3,120 of them, when they went back to their houses on that first day of the church's life, the Bible said with open hearts, they prayed, they broke bread because we are Eucharistically centered, and they studied the apostles' teaching. They didn't even have books to open Any sacred scrolls were only in the synagogue, and with no New Testament writing, they were fresh with the words of the apostle, and they struggled with those words. I want to tell you about that struggling. Those initial wrestlings, those initial sittings with Jesus and the body of Christ, for they wrestled. When the early church, James, the brother of Jesus, looked at Peter and said, come in, my brother, and Peter walked in, and there sat the brother of Jesus with John the Beloved beside him, and they looked at Peter and they said, what's on your mind? We know something's pressing. Peter said, I've just been to a man's house at Joppa. He's a centurion of the Roman guard." Peter shook and said, the spirit fell on them. And they received the Holy Ghost as did we in the beginning. James, the brother of Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God, said, it cannot be. Sacred Scripture does not allow for the inclusion of Gentiles. And Peter said, brethren, I saw it with my own eyes. And the brother of Jesus, the apostle, looked at him and said, who are we to fight with God? And immediately the church began to wrestle, and their conclusion was that if these Gentiles are truly becoming Christians, they got to first become a Jew. They've got to observe Sabbath and circumcision and kosher dietary laws. And Paul said, no, brethren, it's bigger than that. Read Isaiah again. And they argued and said, we've read Isaiah. they still got to be Jews to be Christians. And by the time they wrestled it through, James's heart broke and John's heart broke. And Paul achieved a victory not before he said, I stood up to Peter and put my nose on the end of his and said, Apostle, you may have preached at Pentecost, but you're a hypocrite. I saw you when you sat with Gentile believers and ate dinner with them. But when your Jewish Christian brothers from Jerusalem came up, you jumped up from the table not to be judged. He said, I called him a hypocrite. By the time they wrestled it through, they came out and they said, no, people like you and the rest of the world, they could have never imagined what they were talking about. They don't have to be circumcised and they don't have to be Jews. The gospel's bigger than that. Oh, they wrestled. They wrestled nose to nose just like we do. They wrestled with different issues that mean nothing to you. That day they walked out of that room and they concluded that people like us, all the Jewish Christians asked for per the mouth of the apostles was that you guys would never eat meat that had blood in it. You'd never eat fried chicken that come from a chicken that had been strangled. You don't even know how to wrap your mind around that and yet that was the first apostolic dictum. You know why you don't know how to wrap your mind around it? Even though it is in the written scripture because it's not your context and it's not your generation. Likewise, we have things that they couldn't wrap their mind around. But there is a living, guiding presence of Jesus bigger than the first century and bigger than Palestine. Those initial wrestlings were finally deemed so sacred that by the end of the second century, a full 150 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the church began to make the profound decision to expand their 39-book Bible with another 27 books. And those 27 books were not golden tablets that fell out of heaven, they were the writings born of a community of believers who had simply continued the Emmaus Easter tradition of reading the Bible with the guidance of Jesus at the dangerous interception. An intersection so dangerous that it even leads two of the greatest apostles, Paul and Peter, to put their noses at one another's end, screaming and calling one another names. That's how hard it was. But we eventually deemed their process so holy that we opened our canon, that we had preached Jesus by, we opened our canon and added 27 new books. And that 66-book compendium does not give us simply a set of final conclusions But through the biblical text, we have been graciously given by God an interpretive lens or process of interpretation and application. And when that book that is less constitutional and Stephen a whole lot more invitational, when that book and that lens, that Luke 24 lens of humbly setting down with all saints, all times, all places... 19th century Filipino Catholics and 20th century Northeast Arkansas Pentecostals and 4th century Orthodox Syrians to sit down in the democracy of the ages and let Wesley and Luther and Aquinas and even today Barth and Lewis speak. When that gift, that lens, that process, that hermeneutic, that interpretive method of Jesus at the intersection, when it is utilized and followed faithfully, it will serve us as effectively as it has the church from the beginning. And even those first Christ followers, it'll serve us as we strive to bring the kingdom of God to bear upon some issues heat that are so hard. We talk about them and we still can't come to the end of the complexity. The community called the church is the place where we can come with pressing questions and we can open our Bibles and hopefully our hearts. We can open text and life and we can create a truly holy intersection and we can trust with all the saints, both living and dead, the work of God's spirit among us. And doing this faithfully is hard for some because they want a first century constitution that settled all of the answers long ago. But the Bible does not give us this. The Bible never claims to give us this. But the Bible gives us a process and a guide. It gives us a spirit, a living spirit of Jesus that stands at that intersection where much, ro- much carnage has been wrought. And Jesus calls upon us with civility, decency, and open hearts to trust with all the saints, both living and dead, the work of God's spirit among us and doing this brothers and sisters is both the vocation and the calling of the church and it is also the hope of all creation so when I ask you to think about what you would like to ask Jesus if you had a hearing with him I'm asking you what you would like to set Bibles open With your brothers and sisters and talk about Because as much as you do it with them The least of these You are doing that with him This is the body that Jesus considered better Than the guy in the bronze skin blue robe So now I ask you What would you like to ask Jesus? What would you like to say Jesus? What in the world does the Bible say about this? And when the church can courageously give itself to that process and we can listen and not judge, when we can learn how to give the benefit of the doubt, I wonder if Paul later regretted calling Peter a hypocrite. I certainly, in looking back at the story, think that was too strong. I think Peter was in a hard position. Peter ended up being a good man. Paul was pretty tough. He separated with a kid named John Mark and said, you're not useful for me anymore. Barnabas looked at Paul and said, you're wrong, apostle. And they split ways and both did the work of God. And if Paul was an old dying man, he said, tell John Mark to come and visit with me. He's profitable for the ministry. I would say so. Some believe he's the Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark. Whether or not, Paul certainly changed his mind. He's a tough guy. It's a tough process. Next week is Pentecost, and we're gonna move into a subject called the Spirit and the Church. And four or five weeks from now, we're gonna have a wonderful historian, an octogenarian, almost 80 years old if she's not, named Phyllis Tickle, who's gonna come, and she's going to be with us But before she gets here, we're going to start next week, and we're going to walk through those first centuries of the church and look at the rubric of how that early church taught us to follow the Spirit in Scripture. We got just a few minutes. We might not even discuss them, but I would love to hear from you. Preachers stand up and answer a bunch of questions nobody's asking all the time. What are the questions you're asking? Chris Hauser, I'm wondering, if you could sit down and talk with Jesus, one question, what would it be? Dave, what would it be? Anybody want to be the guinea pig? Lee, Lee, thank you. Another octogenarian and an elder at this church that we love dearly. One question for the body of Christ Jesus. How do you compare Karl Barth, Reinhold Niebuhr, Aquinas, the, the, the great, great uh, scholars and, and souls uh, with Scripture. Yeah. Anybody ever wondered that? Y'all all know that you're supposed to say the Bible is the most important book in my life, even though you read Philip Yancey, C.S. Lewis, and Max Lucado a whole lot more, right? If I ask you what's the most impressionable book spiritually that you've ever read... Not many of you are going to say Habakkuk or Obadiah. Why don't these books that we have been inspired by and moved by, J.D. and I are big fans. I'm a Wesleyan guy. John Wesley shaped my life in such a way that I can't unshape it. Why does Wesley not get in the canon of Scripture? We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. It is a fascinating story somewhere between the National Enquirer and the encyclopedia. (laughs) And we'll cover that. That's a great question. Others, one question for Jesus. Please, I know you got to have them. Ron, I get the microphone. I was thinking this week about Lazarus and how he, um, Jesus rose him from the grave. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting if he would have written a book about what he saw when he died? You know, you hear about people's life after death experiences. Well, obviously he had something. So I think it'd be, I mean, some of those things, I mean, would be interesting to, yeah. So we would ask Jesus, Have you read 30 Minutes in Heaven? Yeah. <laughs> is that true? Or the little four year old kid, did he really see his grandpa? We'd like to ask Jesus about that stuff. By the way, any chance I get to give honor to whom honor is due, we need to do it every now and then because it's so meaningful to me. Ron, who just asked the question, he's the guy that gave us the Eucharist uh, picture up there on the wall. Thank him for that, please. Thank you. Brad Why is there so much division And divisiveness Over this These issues of taking care of widows and orphans The poor in our country The poor in the world Why, why do we fight so yeah. violently about it And, and okay we're going to be myopic right now Because there are hundreds of nations in the world But we all know that the U.S. is God's capital Right <laughs> We act that way Right but within our context, it's the only context we know, and it is representative of the Occident, the West, um, European, American society, it's a big chunk. You know, I would love to sit down with Jesus and say, are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? What do you think he would say? Okay, I'd say smart aleck. Um, <laughs> I probably wouldn't say smart luck. I would say, I would say, well, here's what they believe and they believe. Which one do you resonate most with? How about that? Anybody want to ask him that? A lot of you don't because you already know the answer, right? Right. On both sides. That's a good question. I mean, what, what about the care of the poor? What about taxation? What's fair? The distribute, I honestly believe growing up, moral majority, Christian coalition, abortion, and homosexuality were the two biggies for me my whole life growing up. That's been the thing that's dominated the church. I personally believe at this point, those are very real issues to discuss and we've discussed them here. We haven't done abortion a lot. That would be a fair one to spend some time on. But I do believe personally looking back from the kingdom one day, I believe the misdistribution of the world's means is probably our greatest moral problem. That that my family puts enough food every year down the garbage disposal to feed the children, Leslie, that you were desperately trying to feed in Haiti. That is a moral issue. How that is to be redistributed, it is so complex. Wouldn't you love to have Jesus just come into the middle of that presidential debate and say, Oh, think about it. Jesus just said, I'm saying, now let me talk to you. Whew, that'd be a good one. Yes, Tiffany, she's coming. We'll take a few more of these. Be thinking, of what would you want to ask him? This might be the stuff we talk about in the next series called The Age of the Spirit. Well, I'm always interested, and you talked, Pastor Stan, about prophets today and you know, how God speaks mm-hmm. to us. And often I think we don't listen enough to children. So I wondered if Lily might be willing to ask her question or I'll ask it for you. They might want to hear somebody other than a grown up. You want to ask it, Lily? You ask it. Well, I'll ask it for her. Okay. Because she whispered it to me. But um, why did, why did what? Why did Adam and Eve eat the apple? The, 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 mm-hmm. That's a question that Lily and Sam often ask because they're ready for the new heaven and new earth they're ready to sit by the lion and the lamb that's lily's burning question anybody ever wonder why human beings fell or had to fall anybody ever wonder that why in the why did he make us why couldn't he have made us infallible that's a that's a significant one lily I've been in ministry 30 years, and I hadn't got that one moved over from my right ear to my left ear yet. Stan Jr. asked me when he was about Lily's age about the ark. He said, I really have always liked that ark story, but the only picture he had ever seen was the ark in the nursery with the big giraffe sticking its head out the window. (laughs) But his 10-year-old mind, he looked at me, and he, he said, we were sitting there in the bed, and Reading through the Bible, and we read it. It's dark. He looks up, and he says, did he really drown all the babies? Questions for Jesus. Others, what what questions do we have on our mind? Um, I've been wondering... Um, there's a lot of debate in society over the way we handle mental illness. And I was wondering what Jesus would think about that, that some people are like, yeah, pills are okay. And some people are like, oh, we drug people too much in this country and in the world and stuff. So I was just wondering what Jesus would think about mental illness. How about the cross-section of mental illness with what the new... You've got mental illness and human responsibility, guilty by reason of insanity? Wasn't anybody temporarily insane who killed somebody? How much are we responsible? What's the difference between mental illness, brain illness, and spiritual illness, or illness of the mind? The New Testament even throws in this thing called demonic possession, and some of the people who were demon-possessed simply look like the people we now know as schizophrenic, severely schizophrenic, or mentally ill. I'd love to sit with Jesus and say, talk to me about brain illness, spiritual illness, human responsibility. What's the difference between the brain and the mind? Talk to me about the difference, Jesus, between the spirit and the soul. Who, I'd love to talk to Jesus about that. One or two more. Andreas. We have a little Yorkie in our house that has come in about four months ago. This really house. is going to be your one question if you saw Jesus. I, I said, what's the one question. one question? One question when you see Jesus. And she has brought so much happiness to this household when we're in heaven. Is she going to come? Is she going to be there? Yep. (laughs) Hey, honestly, how many of you does that, and not everybody, how many of you does that question actually matter to? Yep, that's right. We love our... You know why? Because the image of God doesn't just come through human beings. It comes through these animals that are, are, as Sissy said, our brothers and sisters. And you do see the image of God in them. And those old best friends can teach us a lot about love. One more. Who's got the last one? Kev. I know it's hard to top the Yorkie question, but... The question of universal salvation, the multiple religions, yeah. faiths, Buddha coming to one, that, try to resolve yeah. that and answer that riddle. If Jesus walked in here today and sat down, looked at me, and said, one question, that would be in my top three. I would look at him and I would say, inclusivism, exclusivism, heaven, hell, salvation, who's in, who's out, (sighs) talk to me. Because that one weighs heavy on everybody, doesn't it? Wouldn't you love to hear Jesus talk about that? Well, here's what Jesus said through Scripture. He said, you can hear me talk about that, and you can read the Bible with me, but you're not gonna get me in one robe, in one chair. You're gonna get something better. It's called the body of Christ. It's called Southern Baptist and Assembly of God and United Methodist. It's called Lutherans, Missouri and Wisconsin Synod. It's called Coptic Orthodox, Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox. It's called Assembly of God and Church of God. It's called the body of Christ. And you look and say, Why is that better than one clarion voice? I get it. I like certainty and am left-brained as much as the rest of you. All I know is per scripture, Stephen, Jesus said this process would be better in the long run for your soul than one guy giving you all the answers. So here's what I know. The struggle that is born out of our division God is in it and before you look at the church and tear it apart and say well it lacks any credibility because it's so divided you think Jesus didn't know that when he started the church and turned the spirit inside of him over to all of us it must be that this process of sitting with Jesus like this. Some of you have been uncomfortable even to hear the questions. This is painful. A lot of carnage at the intersection. Jesus must have so believed that there is something so soul-making about that because he picked what we've been doing the last 2,000 years over being our one cult leader, giving us all of the perfect answers. So we must, Dave, we must have to be learning something other than certainty. We must, people like you and I who are friends and fall on the opposite side of some subjects but believe in one another's heart, we must on the other side of that subject when we are nose to nose like Peter and Paul, Jesus must be doing something in our soul bigger than certainty and clarity and doctrinal accuracy there's more to soul making than getting the answer right he's making us fully human and we are learning love and forbearance and humility in this and Jesus said this body of Christ look at him sitting up here in the bronze skin with the crown of thorns on his head he said, This is better than that. And you'll do a greater work than I do because of that. So quit kicking against the process and being bothered by the division. We're learning something in this, and it's called love. And in the end, that's going to have the final say anyway. Can you say amen? Church and spirit. We're going to walk through, use this lens. I might even take the Yorkie thing. That might be the first one. (laughs) The universal question. But bring your Bibles and let's walk through and let's do some of this church and spirit stuff over the next few weeks. And then Phyllis is going to come. Next week, I'll introduce a book to you by her that I want all of us to be reading for the next month. Enough for today. This is a good day, huh? Good day. Thank you guys for giving yourselves to it. Lord, thank you for this day. Bless these people that you call your body, the hands and feet and knees and ankles and toes and fingers of Jesus. Oh, thank you, Lord. We all want to be the mouth of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to live faithfully as your hands or whatever part you've called us to. We pray these things in Christ's name. And God's people said... Amen. God bless you. Go in God's peace.